Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a former number one draft choice whose lengthy career as a player in the front office and as a broadcaster has earned him enshrinement in the Texas Rangers Hall of Fame and who's never forgotten what it felt like to step to the plate as a big leaguer. Now batting for the Washington Senators, number two, Tom Greve. And as I walked to the plate, and I, I heard that out of my ear, and I said to myself, I'm a big league player. If, if my name is announced by Bob Shepard at Yankee Stadium, I have arrived. Welcome to Life of the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Tom Grieve, longtime broadcaster, former player and GM for the Texas Rangers. Tom, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Thank you very much, John. Glad to be here. I have, uh, I've done a little research on you, and I have calculated that there have been over 20,000 people who have played Major League Baseball. And I think you may be the only one who fits this description. You've played for one franchise in two different cities with two different nicknames. You've been the general manager of that team. And then you've gone on to be a broadcaster for that team. And I don't know that there's anyone else that's ever done that. Yeah, I, I think it's probably unlikely, um, but I couldn't I couldn't answer your question. I'm not sure I go back far enough to know, but um, I would kind of be on board with you with that one. And, and so that that obviously gives you so much perspective on the game that I think almost no one else has. I mean, I mean, I'm a fan and I'm a knowledgeable fan, but I don't have the perspective that you have. So I kind of want to walk through the perspectives and, and have you guide me through the perspectives. And let's go back to the beginning if we can. Uh, how did sure. you, how did you fall in love with baseball? Well, I owe from the time I can remember when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a baseball player and it may have started when I was probably five years old and my father was having our house painted and I went down in the cellar to talk, not necessarily to talk, but to watch the painter mix his paint. Mm. And when I went, got down there, the first thing he said to me was, I'll bet you're a Red Sox fan. And just the way he said it struck me that I had to say no. So I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, who do you root for? Well, I hadn't, declared who I rooted for. I only knew a couple of teams, so I had to come up with something, and I said the Yankees. <laughs> oh, um, I'm a Yankee fan, and okay. that was the day I became a Yankee fan. My mother became a Yankee fan because of it, and I started to be interested in baseball. My dad, like so many dads, taught me how to play catch, and while we played catch, he'd talk about his favorite team, which was the Milwaukee Braves and old Spawny Warren Spawn was his favorite pitcher. And he'd show me his different pitches. And he said to me one time, I'm going to throw you my dipsy doodle. And all it, all it was, was a, like a high pop-up that came straight down. But he, for some reason he called it his dipsy doodle. And then he would tell me he was going to throw a screwball and he's going to throw a slider, but they were all the same pitch. They, he just gave him a different name. But anyway, that kind of digresses. I, I just, I, 
grew up a fan right from the start. I loved the Yankees. I got the Springfield Union newspaper at 6 o'clock in the morning during the season, studied the box scores, knew the batting averages, played Little League Baseball. I was so fortunate that my neighborhood had oh, I would say 10 or 15 kids within four or five years of each other. And it was a school where we had our sandlot park and we would get together and there were usually two games, one for the young kids, one for the older kids going on all summer long. And um, we all played Little League. It was just a wonderful way to grow up. And from the time I can remember, I said to my mother that I wanted to be a baseball player. And she said to me what any smart mother would say, well, that's a great dream, but make sure that you have a good education so you have something to fall back mm-hmm. just in case it doesn't happen. And sure. um, that was good advice. I did that, and they were very supportive, and um, I was so fortunate and proud that I was able to become a baseball player. Well, obviously, you were a very good amateur baseball player because you were a number one draft pick for the Washington Senators. I was a number one draft choice, and, and I can remember when I – when I was maybe 14, 13 or 14 in my last year of Babe Ruth league, you don't really know how you stack up other than in your own league. And, you know, I felt like I was the best player in my league, which so many kids around the country can say about their league. And so therefore it made sense to me that I was going to be a big league baseball player. And looking back on it, it was such a naive thing to think because who knows that if you're the best player in the Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Babe Ruth League, that you had the qualifications to be a big league player. But I didn't look at it that way. Um, But through high school, it became obvious that I was going to get a chance to get drafted. And um, I did. And I faced a decision. I had a baseball scholarship to the University of Michigan. Back then, scholarships weren't limited for baseball. So it was a full scholarship. And I was a number one draft choice. So I had to decide what I wanted to do. And when I first negotiated with the senators, I didn't agree to the bonus. I went to Cape Cod to play in the Cape Cod League. I was the only high school player in that in that league. And I had a great, great summer. There's the best summer I ever had in baseball. I just loved the Cape and I played well. And when it was over, I said to myself, if I want to be a big league player, um, I need to get better competition. I felt like I you know, was equal to the college competition. And so I just changed my mind and I signed my contract with the senators, went on to Michigan anyway. Um, but I never played baseball in college. Obviously you're more famous for your career later is with the Texas Rangers. And, and one of the things I want to get into later is my guess is that you've seen every highlight in Rangers history based upon your you know, the, the, the evolution from the Senators to the Rangers. But I want to talk about those early days, and I want to talk sure. about your time with the Washington Senators. Tell me about that. Well, I, I remember the first spring training I, I ever went to was in 1969. I was 20 years old, and Ted Williams was our manager. Yeah. I mentioned that I grew up a Yankee fan. Mm-hmm. My rest of my family was were Red Sox fans. So I love Mickey Mantle and they love Ted Williams. And my dad used to take us to a double header one year in New York, the next year in Boston, oh every gosh. year for six or seven years. The first Sunday, one was, Sunday afternoon, double headers, Sunday scheduled double header. Sure. Yeah. They don't, they don't have those anymore, but you know, it just made so much sense. You could see two, two games for the price of one and they weren't split double headers. One started right mm-hmm. after the other, but um, yeah, it was, it was, um, 
it was the way I the way I grew up uh, loving Mickey Mantle. But it seemed like every time they played, Mickey Mantle went zero for four, and Ted Williams went three for four. So I I, I kind of disliked Ted Williams, <laughs> but I was I was such a fan, and I respected and admired the players so much that when I got to spring training for the first time, and Ted Williams was my manager, I didn't I I couldn't even go near him. I I just was in awe of him. I didn't know how to talk to him. I listened to him. Um, but it was just a, it was just a very difficult experience. I've always felt that I would have been much better off early in my career if I didn't know anything about baseball, didn't collect baseball cards, didn't send away for autographed pictures from the players, didn't admire them so much because I wouldn't have been in awe. It took me, it took me probably most of the first couple of years I played just to get that out of my system that when I went to bat against a big league pitcher that I earned the right to be there and I had a chance to get a hit. Instead, I would think in my mind, how can I ever get hit against this guy? I've got his baseball card at home. He's a big leaguer. You know, how can I ever do this? So it took me a while to adjust to that feeling. There is that moment in time for a young ball player, isn't it? I've heard that so many times from players where they're young players and they're in the big leagues and they're in the, and they're in the situation either as a pitcher or a batter. When you're as a pitcher, you're standing there and you're looking at Willie Stargell and you're saying, wow, yeah. I'm in the big leagues. Was, was there that moment for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I can remember my first, my first big league game. Most players can remember that vividly, mm-hmm. but... It, um, I was called up midway through the 1970 season. I was playing in Denver, and I was called up. The Senators at the time were in Yankee Stadium, and I took a red eye red eye flight from Denver to New York. And when there were uh, there was a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium, the Senators were my was my team, and so all night long as I flew, all I could think to myself was, "I'm going to play in Yankee Stadium. That's going to be my first big league game. Wow. Will I play? What number will I bat in the lineup? What position will I play?" And so I got to the ballpark a little bit late. And I walked down the tunnel. I didn't know the players because um, didn't know a lot of the players. Got down the tunnel. I just glanced at the lineup. I saw I was I was in the lineup that day. My parents were in the front row at Yankee Stadium, and my heart just started pounding. Um, played catch in the outfield. I remember standing in the on deck circle, um, and it reminded me um, of something that happened when I was younger. When I went to a Yankee Stadium, I don't remember all the games I saw, but I always remembered. Bob Shepard was the public address announcer, the way he announced Mickey Mantle's name. And he, he, you know, I'm sure that you can do it better than I, but it was something like now batting for the New York Yankees, Mm -hmm. number seven, Mickey Mantle. And it was just so much, much more reverent to hear it announced that way than the, um, the way they do it with the music nowadays. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm standing uh, in the on deck circle, getting ready to go to to go to bat. And as I'm walking up to the plate, um, Bob Shepard was still there. The same announcer said, "Now batting for the Washington Senators, number two, Tom Greve." And as I walked to the plate, and I I heard that out of the corner of my uh, out of the, out of my ear, and I said to myself. I'm a big league player. If, if my name is announced by Bob Shepard at Yankee Stadium, I have arrived as a major league player. Now, I didn't know that I was going to be good enough to stay, but just the fact that it was validated by Bob Shepard's voice, 
um, would have been enough for me if I never played another day of baseball after that to hear his voice do that. And not to digress, but I'll just follow that up with one more thing um, that you may, you may lead me into something uh, uh, more about this, but years later, maybe 25 years later, I went to Yankee stadium again to see a ball game. I wasn't a player, but my son Ben was playing for, for Oakland and they were playing the Yankees in a postseason playoff game. And I got there early. I went out and looked at the monuments in center field. I'd never done that before. And it was a moving experience for me. I watched batting practice. And I remember looking down and, and seeing Ben take batting practice for the A's and thinking how proud I was, but also how glad I was that he was getting the, the same opportunity to do what I had an opportunity to do. So I knew exactly how he felt. And I really wasn't thinking about this when he came up to bat for the first time, but when he did, that same voice, Bob Shepard, went, now batting for the Oakland A's, number 14, Ben Grieve. And so I went back to when I was eight years old, and I heard him announce Mickey Mantle. Fifteen years or so later, I heard him announce my name, and then 20 years after that, the same guy, the same common thread in the whole story was Bob Shepard announced my son Ben's name. So that, you know, I I remember, it's a long way of getting back to your original question about my first game in the big leagues, which I vividly remember, but if I tried to sum my feelings about my career, I would tell that story about Bob Shepard and what that meant to me throughout my baseball career. What is the power of the soundtrack? You were in the place that that was the soundtrack, and you were bona fide. You were a big leaguer because of that sound. Exactly, exactly. I had the pleasure of sharing the microphone with Bob Shepard. You did? In a Cardinals-Yankees spring training game, St. Patrick's Day in 2006, and it was a great thrill for me. The Cardinals were playing the Yankees, and Bob had a a, uh, winter home down in Jupiter, Florida, and we invited him to come up, and they had the Cardinals pull me aside, and they said, we want to have Bob Shepard introduce the Cardinals, the Yankees, and I said, well, that's great, and he was sitting right next to me, and as you know, he was a, he was a small man. He was a short man, despite the fact that he had a very big voice, and, yeah. I, and, I, introdu- uh-huh. and I introduced him, and I have a recording of it, and it's just, a, you know, both you and I are, are acting like fans now. This is great. But I introduced. Well, I had a, I had the pl- a privilege of, of introducing him and the fans. And the, oh, it was wow. interesting looking down in in the concourse at the fans because it was as I began to introduce Bob Shepard, and they could tell what I was doing. They could tell where I was going with this. Heads started to turn, and people started <laughs> to move around, and people started to you know strain their necks and point their fingers. And when I said the voice of Yankee Stadium, Bob Shepard, this, this sta- the spring training stadium erupted with this noise that would have been louder than you would have had for any, any of the Yankee players. And the first words out of his mouth, and I have it on audio, was, thank you, John Frost. <laughs> and, and and you know it's 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 as shallow and compared to you because you were a big leaguer but i understand no, no, what you not. mean that that voice was connected to your identity and it, it was the bona fide of tom grieve is now a big leaguer absolutely i i i used to eat in the press dining room as an announcer when he was brought when he was still there mm-hmm. and he had his own seat in the corner of the press dining room and occasionally there were other people there with him and I always saw him there, and I said to myself, 
one day, finally, I'm going up and I'm telling that story to him. Um, I don't care. Um, and so I sat down and he was very gracious. And I told him that same story and, um, he thanked me. And the next day he came up to me in the press dining room and he said, um, young man, I told that story to my wife last night and we both agreed it was one of the nicest things that you could have said to me. Mm. And, you know, I said to myself, you don't, you're afraid to go up and talk to this guy mm-hmm. because he's such a legend. Yeah. At the same time, he's just a human being. Yeah. And if you have something nice to say, who doesn't want to hear that? And so in the future, I was much less reluctant mm-hmm. to go up and share those kind of moments with somebody where maybe in the past I would have mm-hmm. been intimidated and not wanted to do that. That's a great point. That's a great point. One more, one more note about Bob Shepard. You know, Derek Jeter, that was the only voice that was going to announce him. I love and, that. And even after Bob Shepard passed away, it was always a recording of, of Bob yep. Shepard that introduced Jerry Jeter at Yankee I Stadium. Love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. That, that pretty much says it all. Now batting for New York Yankees, the shortstop, number two, Derek Jeter, number two. Coming up, Texas Rangers broadcaster Tom Greve shares about the thrill of announcing his son in a major league game and what it's like to play for a team managed by the greatest hitter who ever lived. People say, what's your favorite Ted Williams story? Well, I remember saying to Nellie Fox, who was one of our coaches, that was an impressive display. You take a guy that hadn't taken batting practice in 15 years, um... 10 years, he was 50 pounds overweight, and he hit the ball better than any of us. That was that was just amazing. Spring training is coming up, and I'm at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium right now with the general manager of the stadium, Mike Bauer. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Tell me a little bit about spring training coming up. Well, you know, it's fun. Here we are at uh, Fan Fest, and it's the start of the new year. There's excitement in the air. It's great to see a lot of the smiling faces that are out there, and they're they're ready for baseball, as I know you and I are. Um, you know, pitchers and catchers report soon. February 12th won't be here much longer, and the position players are here on the 17th, and on we go. If uh, people want to get tickets to spring training, how do you uh, suggest they do that? Well, there's really uh, four ways they can do that. They can go to cardinals.com, marlins.com, or rogerdeanchevroletstadium.com on the website, or they can call us in the ticket office, uh, 561-775-1818. Who are we going to see this spring? I think we've got a great lineup. You know, first of all, we've got the, the dreaded New York Yankees coming back on March 11th, and that's been a really hot ticket. The Boston Red Sox are coming in on March 15th, and, and I think that one's pretty much sold out already after today. Um, but we've got the Braves. We've got the, you know, the World Series champion uh, Washington Nationals down the street coming in. Houston Astros, both of them you know, making it to the World Series. So there's, there's excitement in Palm Beach County about that. Uh, the Minnesota Twins are here, New York Mets, and Baltimore Orioles for the first time in a few years. Spring training right around the corner here at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium in Jupiter, Florida. You're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on-hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Messageonholdnow.com. 
And now back to my conversation with Tom Grieve, former player and longtime broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. There's a new one every week. I want to go back. You, you referred to something, and this is so fun for me. Tom, thank you for sharing. But I want to go back to the early days of the Senators and then the Rangers. Uh, because, fr- frankly, uh, I'm a Texas boy. And I was, I, was li- I was in high school when the Texas Rangers moved to Arlington. And so that was very much a part of my, gold, my, my wonder years. But the first three managers that you played for for the Texas Rangers, I think, have their own story. I think this is just fascinating. And you've already mentioned Ted Williams. Tell me, tell me about playing as a player for Ted Williams. Well, the, the first thing I mentioned that I had to get over was the fact that I was in awe of him because I grew up a fan of the Yankees and the Red Sox were one of their arch rivals. So that was kind of hard to come to grips with. But he was a very interesting guy. He didn't really want to be a big league manager. Bob Short, our owner, kind of talked him into it. I think he had in the back of his mind an idea he would do it for four years. He hired Joe Camacho, who ran his Ted Williams camp up in New England, to be one of his coaches. And back then, you needed four years to get a pension. And it was like he promised Joe that he would work for four years. Wayne Terwilliger was our third base coach. And Ted didn't even give twig signs during the game. Wayne ran the game from third base as if he were the manager. Ted really had no interest in doing that, but he was obviously a very, very intense hitting instructor. He was also a brilliant guy. I firmly believe that he could have been the CEO of a fortune 500 company. Most people think of him as a hitter and a baseball player, but if you really had the chance to know him like we did, you'd see what a brilliant guy he was. He was one of the greatest fighter pilots in in history. John Glenn said, who, who flew with him, said he was one of the best pilots he ever flew with. He knew photography inside and out. He used to quiz our photographers, and he knew more than they did. He was a world-renowned fly fisherman. Whatever he took an interest in, he became an expert at it. And obviously, he was that way with hitting. But he was... He was very impatient because I don't think he ever came to grips with the reality that he couldn't sit us down, average players, impart his wisdom and watch us become well above average players. I think we all benefited from him, but we were limited by our physical ability. We didn't necessarily have the same eyesight that he had. We didn't have the reflexes. We didn't understand the game, the battle between the pitcher and the catcher like he did. So he was, I think he was always very frustrated that we didn't have more success, but it really had nothing to do with him. He gave us brilliant knowledge. It was our probably lack of ability to put it into, into play that kept us from becoming any better. Well, and you, you hear all the time about these discussions about superstar players and why they don't make good managers. It is. It yeah. Is, and I, I, I think he could have been a really good manager. I don't think he wanted to, he had no interest in it. Mm-hmm. It didn't, it didn't press his buttons, but um, there were some great memories. I'll, I'll share one story if I can do it quickly with you. Mm-hmm. Um, People say, well, what's your favorite Ted Williams story? Well, they have a Jimmy Fund game in Boston. I don't know if they do now, but back then. And Jim, the Jimmy Fund is a fund that raises money for child cancer. 
And in this particular game, they called back 15 or 16 ex-Red Sox players. They let them take a form of batting practice before the game, and they set up a little contest, how far they hit the ball, $50 was donated to the Jimmy Fund, 100 if you hit a home run, and famous Red Sox players took part in this. Well, there was always a question, would Ted do this? He was a little bit overweight. He was a little bit self-conscious about that. He always wore a jacket. But Tom Yawkey, the Red Sox owner, came down into our locker room before the game and evidently talked him into doing it. I think he was thinking about doing it, but this was kind of the icing on the cake. And so every Red Sox hitter had hit. It was his turn to hit. He wasn't in the dugout. But the, the announcer made his announcement. Um, now batting the greatest living hitter, Ted Williams. And there was an enormous applause from the stands. But while he was coming up the tunnel, he was trying to find a bat. And he didn't like any of the bats. And he's, he's swinging the bats and kind of talking under his breath. And what you know should have been kind of a fun occasion for him looked like it was the seventh game of the World Series. He was intense. He didn't know any of us were in the dugout. Then he was he was terribly upset with a pine tar rag because it wasn't sticky enough. It was too greasy. He was in his way of talking with relatively foul language, cussing the fact that we didn't have enough common sense to have a good pine tar rag. He finally gets it the way he wants it. He gets the bat. He rips off his jacket. He's walking out toward home plate. It's quite a walk in Boston. And he starts yelling at the batting practice pitcher, who was a Red Sox uh, pitching instructor named Lee Stang. And he starts screaming at him in the same foul language, don't throw that stuff to me that you're throwing to the rest of these guys. Put something on it. Throw it with some mustard on it. And he walked up to the plate. And we knew he would take the first pitch because he always did. And then, you know, he's a very sarcastic guy. So I think a couple of us were sitting there thinking to ourselves, I hope he swings and misses a few times just so <laughs> maybe he'll come back down to earth a little bit. But he probably took 15 swings, and every single swing, the ball hit the sweet spot of the bat. And he didn't hit any home runs, but virtually every time he swung, he hit a line drive. And it, we, we just sat there in complete awe. He was probably in his early 50s. He was overweight. And he came back to the dugout with the same look on his face, didn't acknowledge the fans, didn't acknowledge anyone in the dugout, just walked right straight down the tunnel and, and back up back up into his office. And I remember saying to Nellie Fox, who was one of our coaches, that was an impressive display. You take a guy that hadn't taken batting practice in 15 years, um, 10 years, he was 50 pounds overweight, and he hit the ball better than any of us. That was, that was just amazing. And Nellie said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't know how a guy could do that, even as great as he was 10 years later. He hadn't picked up a, picked up a bat in 10 years. And Nellie said, um, well, that's not exactly right. He's been taking batting practice underneath the stadium for the last six weeks. Do you wow. think Ted Williams would show up for a hitting exhibition without knowing what the result was going to be? Mm. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of dawned on me, well, you're exactly right. There's no way he would do this if he wasn't ready for it. So he was very ready for it, and it was impressive, and I'll never forget it. On the next episode, I'll share part two of my conversation, Texas Rangers Hall of Famer Tom Grieve, sharing more stories about the early days of the Rangers in Texas, including playing for Ted Williams, Whitey Herzog, and Billy Martin. He'll also describe a dad's thrill of announcing his own son, 
in a major league game. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. I'm John Frost with Life at the Ballpark. <laughs>